I do think that in its ideal form, that Amish theology, A, isn't something that any of us need to embrace, but does allow us to have a, a, a different, a, it gives us an alternative way of thinking about what does it mean to be a Christian when what I believe doesn't match with what the government tells me to do or not to do. Hello, and welcome to Thinking Out Loud. I'm your co-host, Nathan Rittenhouse. And I'm your co-host, Cameron McAllister. And today we want to talk about the old Amish farmer, Amos Miller, who apparently has made his way through various news channels and lawsuits over the last several years and legal troubles. And the reason that I want to mention this is that I have a pretty different take on it than most of what I've been hearing in the online world. And uh, you know, it hit mainstream news eh, a couple weeks ago, maybe, but just kind of hasn't gone away, particularly in the categories of people interested in food, food production, and that sort of thing in the United States. And the reason that um, it's popular, so you have the Tucker Carlson, you have Glenn Beck's, those folks who are very involved in this, and primarily the large-scale narrative seems to be like, oh, look at the USDA and the federal government, like, jumping on the little guy here and trying to put this Amish farmer out of business. So I think he has a $300,000 fine against him right now and some other legal troubles. And I would just respectfully say that the reason that he is in legal trouble is because, wait for it, he broke the law. Yeah, so, so it's just kind of that, like... That, that'll do that. that. That'll do that, yeah. He's doing what is massively illegal and known to be illegal by a large number of other farmers. And if what he was doing was legal, there would be... 100,000 other people who would love to be involved in it. So there's that whole thing going on. But it's just funny how we assume, I think, from a, like, there, there's some sort of, like, Amish innocence that culturally still exists of, like, oh, it's got to be right if the Amish, like, I I don't, help me out there. Do, do you see what, you, you, are you are you seeing what I'm seeing? Well, before we get there, though, spell out the precise nature of his crime real quickly. Yeah, okay. So, so here's how it works in the United States. And by the way, I'm totally sympathetic to a lot of this being totally ridiculous. Um, so here's how this works. So for example, I'm going to butcher some hogs here in like two months, and it is totally illegal for me to sell you a pork chop. So any meat that is sold has to be federally inspected in order for it to be sold. So if I take, so I can butcher my own animal and I can eat it and I can give it away, but I can't sell it. If I want to, like, so when we butcher beef, I buy the cow from my brother. So it's my cow, and then he takes it to the butcher for me, and then it's processed, or we process it ourselves, whatever. So th that's the workaround, but most people don't want to buy a whole cow at a time or a half of a hog or something. So you're looking at the piecemeal version of that. Um, so you can do custom butchering, but it has to be in a federally inspected facility in order for you to purchase it piecemeal. which. Mm. You can see that there's a lot of, you know, Upton Sinclair, like go back and read some of the old history of the meat packing and all that. And the regulation is there theoretically, mostly for the protection of people. So um, Amos Miller's situation is that he has what's called a private membership association, which has about 4,000 families in it. So he's feeding a lot of people with his operation from vegetables, poultry, uh, red meat, uh, and then one of the other big ones that gets them in trouble is raw milk. Mm -hmm. So essentially how this works is that there is a loophole where you can set up a private membership association, which is, I guess, like 
maybe something like a golf club or a country club would work on the same way that it's a, it's an internal entity where everything is done like on hand to hand tracks transactions. So the idea here is, is that in this setup that the individual, so if, if you and I set one up and then you wanted to buy a pork chop from me, you would come and you would look at my backyard and the fields around and say, yeah, I like the way Nathan's doing this. This looks good to me. I think this is safe for me to eat and to feed to my family. So it's you you become the regulator of whether or not the food is safe for you to eat, essentially, rather than having the USDA put a stamp on it, um, which by and large, I think that could work. Where Amos Miller got in trouble is he ships stuff like across state lines, so all over the country. Mm. And so there's no way that if you order a gallon of raw milk from him in Florida and it takes three days for it to get there, there actually are some safety issues on that. And B, it's not like you checked in the barn to see the conditions under which it would it was produced. And like, so on raw milk, I know people who milk their own cow and drink raw milk who are all about it. And at the same time say, I would absolutely never buy raw milk from somebody that I didn't know and didn't seriously trust because there's a lot of ways for this to go wrong in a hurry. And in fact, I think somebody did die of listeria in Florida from a listeria outbreak like four years ago that was linked back to his farm. So there's, it's just a... I, I really, I mean, th there really are some messed up things with the legal system. Don't hear me saying that. I think it's wild, like, up until recently, like, it would be, I would receive a much bigger fine for selling you raw milk than meth, for example. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so it's like, we, we have some extremely high food safety yeah. laws um, and some regulation that I think really does inhibit the small producer of saying, like, I live in a county that produces a ton of beef, but nobody's allowed to sell it. And so it all has to go through multiple middlemen before it can go to the shelf. So because we don't have a federally inspected infrastructure for doing that. So I, there, there is like, there's something to think about there and there's plenty to complain about. And particularly if you have a few little libertarian leanings in your life, there's a lot to jump on this and be like, the whole system is just totally messed up and does massively consolidate power into like four major corporations and like, okay, so that's a whole nother rant. All I'm saying is, is that what he did, and he knew he did, was break the law, and therefore he has a fine. And I mean, we're talking about fairly large, like they confiscated like 36,000 pounds of meat at one point and then like inspected it and gave it back to him to distribute through. So it's not like somebody selling a dozen eggs in their backyard. It's, it's a significant operation, but the kind of the tear that happens among like the small farming groups who operate under personal membership association platforms is saying, well, now the government is popping the bubble of the protection of that economic unit and community that's legally formed. And I would just say, well, they're not because you're not doing a hand-to-hand -hand tr like transaction if you're shipping across state lines. So anyway, that's that's by and large, it's, it's more nuanced and complex than that, but th that kind of sketches the main framework of what's going on here. Yeah, and I think that gives an adequate picture though of why what you've just told us is a whole lot less simple and a lot less easy than the way it, it has been framed. <laughs> As, the poor Amish farmer, the government's coming in there, raiding his farm and stealing yeah. all his beef. Yes, the, yeah, the big government crushing the little guy, crushing the little Amish farmer. That's not what's going on. But Which I think can happen. Let's be clear. Like, I'm not, this is, and I'm not, I'm not totally anti-regulation, and I'm not like, regulation makes you safe either, so... There's middle ground there. I'm just saying for the legal structure that exists, whether you like it or not, he broke the law. 
Exactly. Well, so back to what you asked me at the beginning there. I do think that what happens here is we've got a bit of a romantic view. I think the public view of Amish people is going it's going to be complex, but by and large I think a lot of people have a romantic vision of Amish people. I think a lot of Christians have a, have a romantic vision of Amish communities. And I'll tell you the soundbite. I was talking to you about this earlier. I'll try to use more generous terms this time. But the soundbite that I've heard from time to time that gets under my skin a little bit is, oh, man, I would just, it's a simpler form of life, isn't it? No, it's not. And I just, I think if, I, I, it's just hard for me to hear that because you, first of all, the person who says that is invariably usually someone who moves in the upper classes, who, you know, is used to the whole constellation of modern conveniences, totally all, all of their habits are formed by that. And that's, that's the whole way they live their lives. So the, I mean, it's just a very cavalier statement because actually, if you were actually to go into the Amish community, I think a lot of us would be predisposed to receive a lot of their rules and regulations as tyrannical because they would mm -hmm. fly in the face of the individualism that we just take for granted. We don't even think about how fiercely individualistic most of us are. And they are truly a community with a set of very firmly established community rules, many of which I think are just going to be received as oppressive. So the Amish... It's all fun and games until your bishop tells you you can't have a cell phone. Precisely. So. Yeah, so the Amish from a distance... I think we, we just think, oh, verdant fields and laundry drying out in the sunshine. But if you're actually in that community, I mean, we're talking a lot. It's a whole way of life that runs counter to what to to everything that we we do. I mean, in a, this is somewhat similar. I've heard similar sentiments, by the way, expressed about monasteries before as well and convent living. Well, people will say, oh, I just long for that, for the simplicity, the holy simplicity and the silence. And part of me thinks, and it takes one to know one. So I'm speaking as an insider here, but I think in my more sober moments, yeah, you don't want that. You, you, so your inner life isn't rich enough for that, Cameron. But anyway. So there, there would also be an interesting perspective here. So you have inside the Amish community, and then you have the English. That's everybody who's not them. Mm -hmm. and, and much of this at the distance. I think the really interesting <laughs> insights come from those who live like right on the cusp, who have mm -hmm. Amish neighbors or interact with them and say, okay, yeah, well, the Amish teenage boys all own trucks and just park them in our driveway. And like all the shenanigans <laughs> yeah. and shady stuff that goes on there, um, combined with the fact that they do not have a great reputation economically which I'll sum up by just saying, if you've ever done business with an Amishman, you did not get a good deal. <laughs> oh. that, that might that, that might be a bit of a, because there's there's like a, hey, we take care of ourselves and our community, but if you're not us, we're sticking it to you. Um, wow. And so there's all kinds of crazy shady stuff that's done, even in like the production of produce to furniture of stuff where they definitely understand the marketing value of their name and and work the system. And you can find tons of stories of people just being so fed up with the whole thing. So the people who are close enough to know, um, well, my, when my grandparents lived in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and my grandpa always said, everybody wants to have the Amish for their neighbor and nobody wants to be them. That's a good saying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there is kind of like this idealism that we like being out there. 
there's the reality of the brokenness of humanity within any system. And then there's like the maybe, maybe actual interface. And hey, look, I know, I mean, so I went and spoke somewhere in Indiana to like 400 ex Amish evangelicals uh, a couple years ago. That was a ton of fun. And, and, and I mean, all their families are Amish and they love them and uh, have friends who have Amish neighbors and family members of Amish neighbors and, and good interactions. And there are good people. I think mm -hmm. there are sincere Christians within that system. But just like any other subculture, you can have a wide variety of what that means. Um, so anyway, just a thought there. Well, and the word subculture brings us to an interesting point here because so the Amish, more so than most, are in profound tension with their surrounding culture. And this this story does showcase that tension, I think, a little bit because you've got this community who have an independent way of governing themselves and a whole just a very different ethos than America. And yet they still have to abide by the laws of the land. And so that's where you and and so in this case, I think part of what what you're pointing to here is, look, some of these regulations, yeah, they I mean, there is a lot of red tape. And frankly, they do get Kafka-esque and weird and they are elaborate, but you can't flout the law and not expect consequences for, for that kind of behavior. And at the same time, aren't we, I mean, again, isn't this community held to a high standard when it comes to their conduct? I don't know. I, I'm, I'm wrestling with this a little bit here because from my extremely limited perspective, it just seems that you've got, you're, there, there are going to be more and more kind of points of pronounced tension as, but again, the world has been so modern for a while and Amish communities, you know, continue to go about their ways. But I think, I mean, I think here, what is the relationship of Amish communities to the laws of the land? I mean, how does that well, work? Well, so here, <clears throat> yeah, so here's where um, I was reading through some of it. And, and there are weird things like the, the council that he was appointed by the state doesn't seem to be that great. And there's, there's a lot of legal wonkiness in how this is all being handled. But the most non-Amish thing he said, so this is maybe Amish economically, but not Amish theologically, if you want to lean into the Anabaptism of the Amish, is to say like, look, we're doing this good thing and the government is wrong. And so we have to push back against it. And when you get into that posture, that's not Anabaptism because the Anabaptism of the past and the reason the Amish are in America is because you say, okay, here are the laws of the land. We think they're dumb. We choose to break them and we'll suffer the consequences of it. And if that gets too bad, we'll move someplace else. And I mean, so there, there, I mean, so there's that, that's, that's why they're in Pennsylvania. Uh, now it's been a couple hundred years to put them there and other, other places, but that has by and large been that subculture's response of Romans 13, the government has authority, um, don't resist an evildoer. And you just say, fine. Mm -hmm. All right. Local government, you feed these 4,000 families. We'll go do something else. Um, so that, and that, that might be a bit, that might sound a bit rollover-ish, but that has historically been the way in which the subculture that knows it. So this, this is the interesting thing about Anabaptist history is that if you look at a lot of the injustice propagated against them, nobody feels bad or bitter about it because they inspect, they expected it all. I can look back in my family history at some of the executions by certain churches on behalf of the state 
And nobody's like, oh, the, the horror and the injustice. They're like, that's ah, about right. Moving on. Um, so it's, it's a little bit of a different thing for the legal battle to be included in this. Um, and there's been a big change within in the Amish community on voting too oh, really? over the last four years as well that may or may not play into this to a certain extent. So yeah, there's that. I suppose I'm, I'm curious, Nathan, I think in some ways you're in a better position to answer some of these questions than I am just given your own theological background. I'll, I'll note in passing here that Nathan handles this question with lots of patience, but Nathan, a lot of people ask you or assume that you're Amish, don't they? <laughs> so particularly when I didn't have a mustache and we lived in England, everybody was asking us if we were Amish. And I was like, yeah, but my horse died halfway here. Um, <laughs> so that, that always, <laughs> um, no. So, so yeah, just quick history. So you have, um, the Mennonites right around the time of the reformation, um, gathered around the teachings of Menno Simons and all of those early Anabaptists and Mennonites were either Lutheran or Catholic priests or monks or people who converted into a, a different style and system of reading scripture that was radically separation of church and state. And so that caused all sorts of untold, particularly with the adult baptism thing, because your, your baptism of your infant was the, was its registration with the state. And so if you weren't doing that, then you're kind of like an unregistered citizen. So it, it really, there was a big mess um, for a couple hundred years there. In the 1690s, there was a bit of a, well, they were trying to figure out what they all believed. And there's a guy named Jacob Amon who was going around um, preaching and teaching. And he, he basically formed the more conservative version of that movement. And so Amon turns into Amish in the 1690s. Uh, my family was Mennonite at that point, but had already immigrated to the U.S. in the 1680s. Um, so long history on that side. And then of of Mennonites and a lot of, if I look back over the last nine to 11 generations, a lot of flip-flopping back and forth between Mennonite and Brethren, which everybody said had to more do more with a girl than theology um, because they're fairly similar on a lot of those things. And then on another side of the family, uh, a couple hundred years of Church of the Brethren, which was an attempt to and it's currently failing attempt to balance Anabaptism and Pietism uh, and to take out some of the more um, authoritarian ecclesio ecclesiological structures of pure Anabaptism while maintaining a similar biblical interpretive and hermeneutical style. So that's a very brief history there. So I, I land at a spot of having that as a, not just a theological history, but as a family history and tradition for many hundred years in a lot of different directions but then also bouncing around to England and Texas and Massachusetts and other places for theological education. Um, but do think that there are some very helpful things there for the future of the church in North America as we think about what it means to exist faithfully without political power. Uh, and so I think there are some elements there and also on community that, you know, like one of my grandfathers would say that if you look at the progress of this would be a very Anabaptist way of thinking about it, of kind of your salvation and sanctification, that you recognize Christ's death and resurrection and the salvific impact that it has on you as an individual. And then you begin to see that his teachings have implications for discipleship. And so discipleship would be a huge implication of, or a huge emphasis within Anabaptism. Um, but then the third progression would be, then you start to see that you as an individual don't make sense. And there has to be a collective and communal nature to your witness in order for it to be a legitimate and stable long-term. 
So there's a, there's kind of a personal salvation that isn't individualistic with a high degree of focus on discipleship. Um, and with a particular emphasis on Jesus's teachings on the Sermon on the Mount as a divine command, um, not as a future tense proclamation, but something that is possible under the power of the Holy Spirit. So those would be some of the things that are very alive and well in that whole theological framework and things that I do think have some uh, margin of educational value for the future of all Christians uh, who are interested in the com conversation, the concept of long-term sustainability for their faith outside of a political structure. That makes sense. And I mean, so given your some of your theological proximity to this community, even though you've got more of an eclectic background. Yeah, I'm not Amish at all. I'm not an authority on it, but I, no, I mean, but, I rented a house from Old Order Mennonites. I went to a conservative Mennonite church for like six years. Because I, I, I kind of dabble and run laps in yeah. some circles that maybe not everybody else does. I would put uh, you in a, in, a yeah, in a place that's semi-adjacent in some ways. But, okay, so... I know some people who know some people. Yeah, but I mean, for the record, I've I've been to the Rittenhouse home, and there are horseless carriages in the driveway, and there's <laughs> electricity <right>. flowing. <laughs> I often but, use buttons. So. Yes, <laughs> but my question though then would be if so i'm curious about you you had mentioned to me the the, the popular sentiment well if amish people do it it must be right you help me to unpack that a little bit what i i too notice that and i find that thought springing to mind for myself sometimes thinking oh well you know this is just automatically going to be more holistic and more in tune with creation. Now, where on what why do I think like that? Where is that coming from? Oh, okay. So, well, let me throw another and I think this is the the, the most hilarious one. Another um example in there before we we start to push into that. And I'm not sure that I know entirely. But here's the thing. Let's be honest. Amish romance novels are what keep Christian bookstores afloat. I was yes, I was um, hoping you'd bring and, this up. Yes. Yeah. So okay, look at any Christian publisher and a huge percentage of what they're selling is Amish romance. And then I was even talking to a Christian book guy. I was like, what is the deal with this? And he like hung his head in like semi-shame. <laughs> and he's like, I know it's terrible, but it pays the bills. <laughs> and so there there's like this, this funny, like, oh, romantic smut is fine if it's Amish because it's pure. Like, so it's like, it, I don't know. It's, it's like some kind of you're external packaging that it, you're disguising it. Maybe a smut so, is, it's disguised. Maybe smut is a bit strong. Cause I'm sure it's not as risque as a lot of other romance novels. But on the other hand, there's this, a deep sense of me just rolling my eyes and banging my head on the desk over the whole category. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it does it. I mean, certainly it looks like dressing up a Harlequin romance novel in more respectable clothing so that you can kind of <laughs> pretend maybe that that's not what this is. I remember there was, there's a whole chapter in, we talked about Daniel Silliman's reading evangelicals book, which looks at the evangelical movement through the lens of the fiction that they love, the bestsellers. And he's got a chapter, mm -hmm. he's got one Amish, at least one Amish romance novel in there called The Shunning. And I, the author's name is escaping me. This is a wildly popular book. But oh, is it Beverly Lewis? It might, yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, I think so. And uh, now the moral of that story, hilariously enough, is that she, you know, it's it's a woman born into an Amish. You know, she is Amish. That's her. This is her life and her community. She falls in love and ultimately 
love has to liberate her to discover her authentic self, which necessarily means making a break with the community and its sort of oppressive and you know repressive community guidelines yeah so i mean you, well, so, you, you can't find a more thoroughly americanized story if you tried but <laughs> well th so the, the idea of shunning is interesting um so like i said my wife and i rented from an old order mennonite couple uh, after college like horse and buggy propane lights the whole deal um the only thing that they had that used electricity was they had a, a pair of um battery rechargeable electric hair clippers that she would cut his mm -hmm. hair with <laughs> and so like once a month, I would get a phone call from Johnny. He'd be like, hey there, Nathan, can I come over and borrow your electricity? Which I just love that line. Can I come over and borrow, borrow electricity? your electricity? <laughs> yeah. Absolutely wonderful people. We had a great time um, getting to know them, and they were wonderful to us. And so they owned a house that had electricity that we rented, but the house that they lived in didn't. Yep. Um, and so just really wonderful people. Tons of great stuff to say about it. But then later, I um, was talking to somebody who was like a cousin or something, and they mentioned her sister the the landlady's sister who she never mentioned and she had been shunned and lived somewhere in a totally secular for lack of a better word in a different state or something mm -hmm. and was just gone um now there's been a lot of <laughs> there's an old order mennonite store we used to i used to go to with one of my mennonite buddies who like they had books like biblical guidelines to shunning we're like we got to get this and just put it on our coffee table <laughs> just to make your company <laughs> mess with people it's a good place to buy a straw hat and some uh i don't know what else you might need there? Plain coats and Dutch blitz cards. But the um, <laughs> the idea, like so a lot of people are pretty hard on shunning. On the other hand, if you're pulling out the separation of church and state thing, you also have to think that this is a multi-century community that doesn't have a military or a police force or a prison or a jail system. And so the thing with shunning is, is you mess up and you're outside of the community you can come back in at any point that you're willing to reform and repent. And yeah. so it does seem harsh on one degree, but if you say compared to what, like, oh, this person messes up, we'll just put them in prison for 15 years or, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, suddenly it's not really an apples to apples comparison on how you do community mm -hmm. discipline and reintegration. So that is, am I making a, tacit plug for shunning i'm not sure but no, anyway you're giving some um, good healthy perspective for it because I, I think we are primed to see it uh in in a very you know just to be horrified by it and to and to see it as outrate outrageous but again that's a that's a picture of how far we removed we are not just geographically but in our in our mindset from an amish community so to think about it in those terms and the way the whole ethos of the community how the rules and regulations work when you when you put it into that perspective i think you're just making it more understandable doesn't mean you're giving a defense yeah because i'm i'm sure uh, that it's been used in abusive ways like i'm almost of course yeah. so but the human most beings things can, are and can be yeah i was gonna say human beings can take any practice any ritual any tradition and make it abusive that's okay yeah so back around to your i think the question we're trying to get toward is so why do we believe that everything Amish is pure? Is that it, basically? That's it, basically, yeah. I've got some some ideas floating around in my head, but I'd love to hear Help me out, because I'm... Okay, yeah, let me get I, the wheels turning. Because I, I, I think I don't embody that perspective, and so it's hard for me to get there. Yeah, um, well, because I think I think you just have a more... Naturally, you just got a more realistic view of it's it. It's like because, all raw milk is clean. 
No, it's not. Yeah. Well, you're you're <laughs> you too <know>? so <laughs> you're too close to the source to have that kind of romantic vision or this. I would really want to call it a sentimental vision. So here's what I think is going on. At least I think this is what's going on in me a little bit. There is a kind of that it's a view that Amish communities embody a, a, a sort of innocence. And that there and there's almost a kind of so you take that that the notion that they embody this kind of innocence and it's coupled with a kind of Edenic view of what they're of the way they live. So that's where the simplicity notions come in. Well, you know, it's a more rustic form of, of existence, but it's also more natural. They're more in tune with creation and the earth. They're more dependent on the seasons. And you know they're they're closer together. This the type of isolation and alienation and anomie that kind of characterizes modern life is absent there. But there's also this childlike, beautiful innocence. So it's almost as though you've you've entered into. So I think to to a certain kind of tired, jaded Western person, it looks like this is some sort of a beautiful escape from the darkness or just the suffocating noise of modern life. Mm-hmm. I don't think and that's what's be, actually going on, but yeah. 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 Right. To be clear, though, a lot of those things are good and are to be desired. Um, sure. If you're interested in kind of an in-between version of this, I was thinking, you remember, we've talked about Matthew Sleep before he wrote Save God's, or yeah, Serve God, Save the Planet, not mm-hmm. Save God, Serve God, Save the Planet. But his wife, um, Nancy, wrote a book called Almost Amish, which was an attempt to look at a modern capturing of appropriate simplicity. Mm-hmm. And as a spiritual discipline. And I think, yeah, by and large, there's some helpful things to lean into there of um, community dependence. So like even the denomination I'm a part of would have totally modern everything, but would also have denominational statements of saying, look, neighboring farmers should really try to own equipment together Mm -hmm. and to not go into debt and to share and pull resources. Um, And so like even in the time of my great grandfather of owning a threshing machine and you would all travel around to everybody's farms to do the harvesting. That was a great great grandfather, but um, so I mean, there are some real Christian ideals there. Some of those were not formed theologically as much as, oh, we just stole everybody's farms except for one. Okay, well now everybody has to figure out how to make this work. So um, you know that there there were some political pressures that forced some of these things as well. So uh, yeah, I'm I'm stuck in between because I think there are things to be pointed to there as a source of this can work, and you can biblically defend it, and you can see how you can get there. Um, on the other hand, it's never the structure. It's always the relationship with Christ that produces the harmony and the peace. So that kind of, um, I don't know. I'm, I'm stuck in the middle there of saying, I think you're right. Um, and, but some of our longing for some of that, your, your cause and effect is more immediate and more clear. I think in a more agrarian context, you're also your concept of, so yeah, I asked my landlord, I was like, you know, with your horse, like how far can you travel from home? And he said, I have about a 15 mile radius, um, in a day I could go 15 miles out and come back. And that'd be kind of about the limit of what I would want to do. Um, which is interesting. That means that all of his community and all of his provisions in life come from a 15 mile radius of his house, man. So you necessarily depend on the community in a deep way Mm -hmm. when you can't travel more than 15 miles without paying somebody to come pick you up in a van. Um, So 
there some ways it's the ultimate local um mm-hmm. movement that again you see different people aspiring to uh to some degree and a, and a reliance on each other i mean so the thing is so for the the mennonite crew that i knew um none of them had insurance but they all collectively paid medical bills and so there's a little girl with brain cancer her bill is seven hundred thousand dollars at the local university research center and the church wrote a check yeah wow that's how that worked mm-hmm. um move on next question uh, and so i mean there are some really neat and fascinating um and they also got a discount because they paid up front in cash right. in one payment yep. but um so i mean there are some beautiful things about that of like christians saying we will cover and care for each other's burdens in that way and and things like that um so yeah things to celebrate but not things to idolize i like that i think that's a fitting word there things things to celebrate but not things to idolize and i'm glad that also you're pointing out that it, it I'm, i hope i don't sound too disparaging when i'm saying romantic and sentimental i'm talking about myself here too but these are legitimate desires i mean the desire for deeper roots for closer connections with the people around you i mean i, I hesitate to use the word community so much because like everything it's become a buzzword but you know what i mean by that just closer connections and I think a lot of us will recognize the value of having a deeper, cultivating a deeper dependency on those around us. But it's one thing to recognize the value of that, right? Let's pool our resources. Let's share equipment and machinery. It's another thing to actually make make arrangements to do that. It's challenging. I mean, it would be challenging for me. It's challenging for a lot of us because we like our stuff. Again, we're so conditioned to think in more individualistic terms, especially when we're thinking. Imagine, yeah. yeah. Imagine if you and your three closest neighbors shared your lawnmower. Well, exactly, right. And now, that, I mean, just, I take a few steps back. It makes so much sense. You know, why don't me and my neighbors share our lawnmower? And of course, you know, there is a little bit of that, but what we should, I, I would, I mean, one of the takeaways for me looking at Amish communities would be to hold property more lightly in the sense of seeing it as a useful tool that can benefit a group rather than just me. Oh, you know, I'm so glad. Yeah, I, so- I yeah, I have this top of the line thing here and it's my chainsaw <laughs> rather than this will, you know, this will really help, you know, Aber out as well. Sorry for the name. Yeah. Well, so and it, but again, so let me pop the bubble a little bit further here because like if you look at some urban areas in Pennsylvania, large swaths of the rental properties are owned by Amish. In urban areas <laughs> that are managed through brokers, okay, so yeah. like capitalism yep. is alive and well in that community. Let's just, yep. but, I mean, so for example, everybody is losing their minds laughing about there is some animal rights protest where the protesters were releasing um, imprisoned pigeons, and it was a bunch of Amish boys selling homing pigeons, and they were releasing them and bringing them back, and they were reselling them, and they were releasing oh my them. Goodness. like they sold some of the same pigeons. I forget how many times to the same group of people. Like clever, it's hilarious. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, I mean, I, yeah. Anyway, that's, that's neither here there. We're way off topic of coming back around to saying, okay, whether there are benefits or not to the beauty of a subculture, subcultures will necessarily at times run into, bump up against, and conflict with the more predominant culture around them, yep. particularly the political laws of the land that they live in. And that has, always been um so so here's what i think i don't think that so 
it's an interesting case as far as food safety goes and it and it sheds interesting light and I think is helping a lot of people for the first time seriously think about whether or not the USDA has their best interest in mind. Um, I mean, and by the way, your USDA beef can be gr- produced in any other country, but it gets stamped when it comes into the country if it's inspected as US beef. So you don't like pr- probably a lot of your US beef that you're eating is from Argentina, but the USDA inspects it. So that makes it American product. You know, so there's stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, are there chemicals used that some people are allergic to? I'm sure, absolutely. Are there people who benefit from raw milk? I bet there are. Um, all of that can be true. And so let's set the food thing aside and perhaps what this, why this, this case doesn't sit right with me is that I do think that in its ideal form, that Amish theology, A, isn't something that any of us need to embrace, but does allow us to have a a different, it gives us an alternative way of thinking about what does it mean to be a Christian when what I believe doesn't match with what the government tells me to do or not to do. And so that is a new category for a lot of Christians if you've lived in an era where by and large, your your Christian ideals and your political will are one and the same. And so here we have a group we can just look at and say, here's a group which historically that has not been the case, and yet they still exist. And so I'm, I think the, okay, we talked about the case just because it's interesting to us and has some interesting sidebars there. But I would say that there's a, there's a way moving forward here that will become interesting in the future where the Amish will be an interesting conversation partner um, for how to think differently about political interaction and engagement. In fact, this shift has already been happening. I mean, I remember even in seminary, people would ask me, so Nathan, what's the Anabaptist perspective on? And I'd be like, first of all, not a spokesperson. Second of all, lots of different, <laughs> lots of variation within that. But what's happening as in some subsectors of the American churches, we're recognizing that as we lose, quote, the moral majority or political authority or whatever you want to call it, that there are two strains of American theology that are orthodox and that have existed outside of political influence. And that's the black church and the Anabaptist churches. Now, the black church has engaged in a, in a very different way, um, but oddly enough, has far more books and theologians and scholars and people who are writing on this. And it's far more ac- academically accessible in order for us to glean kind of the treasures that, that has been preserved there through um, s- the tragedy of their experience in the past and a lot of the beauty that's been brought along with that for us to think about what it means to be a Christian. So that side is far more accessible. The Anabaptist element of thinking about what does it mean um, for a group that's like not even been disinterested in politics, but totally shunned the concept of voting or political office or anything like that, that will be another fascinating conversation partner just to know that it's out there. So I think Amos Miller might be getting out over his skis a little bit here on some of this stuff, but let's uh, not throw the baby out with the raw milk and um, continue to hold that as a place to think about what we believe and how that interacts with the broader culture around us. And I think helpfully to begin to see ourselves as a subculture, as Christians, and to think about what the communal nature of what it means to be a Christian uh, means and is going forward. So anyway, hopefully that uh, poked a few interesting buttons for you and got you thinking down some rabbit trails that will bear good fruit in your life. And if not, hopefully it was at least interesting. 
But you've been listening to Thinking Out Loud, a podcast where we think out loud about current events and Christian hope. Thanks for listening to Thinking Out Loud. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, book Nathan or Cameron, or if you'd like to support us financially, whether through a one-time donation or on a monthly basis, you can do so on the donate page at www.toltogether.com. That's toltogether.com. And please consider leaving us a five-star rating and sharing this content with your friends. It really does help.